Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Hey everyone, Eric Rivenis here. Happy New Year. A few words before we begin today. Uh, First, if you are listening to this show through Apple Podcasts, you might have noticed that I have a subscriber option available now, officially for the new year, Most Notorious Plus. I've had ad-free episodes for years now through Patreon, but I also know that Patreon is not for everyone, so I figured this would be a nice alternative for those so inclined to partake. Also, I'm going to be experimenting a bit with content in 2024. I'll still continue the regular full-length interviews, of course. That's what this podcast is and what it will continue to be. But I've always felt a bit limited by the format this format that I've created for myself. There are a number of cases I've wanted to cover over the years, but without a book and an author, I haven't done it. So throughout this year, I'm going to be supplementing my regular interviews on occasion with stories researched, written, and narrated by me. I'll also be expanding my circle of guests to interview, including museum directors, genealogists, and others who are experts on a given topic but may not have written a book about it yet, or may have a compelling narrative to share but one without enough information to devote an entire book to, like the stories my guest Kimberly Tilly will soon share in today's interview. Much of this new content will be available for free alongside my interviews Uh, But I'll have bonus content as well, exclusive to Apple Podcasts and Patreon subscribers. And my plan is to release many of these episodes with a This Day in History theme to make it more interesting. And these new episodes will pop into the feed randomly throughout the year in a kind of Wild West fashion. And uh, once we reach the end of 2024, I'll look forward to your feedback. And if the experiment proves popular we can continue it into 2025. Anyway, thanks for sticking with me. I'm really looking forward to the new year, and I hope you are too. Lots of stories to tell, lots of dark history for us to explore. All right, on with the show.
Welcome all to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Uh, I've got Kimberly Tilly back this week. She has been on the show four times and so glad to have her on for the fifth. The focus of her research and writing is true crime in the American Gilded Age, one of my favorite time periods as well. And she doesn't have a, a new book out this time around. But she has a wonderful website called Old Spirituals, uh, oldspirituals.com, where she posts stories that are really fascinating, uh, but not well-known or widely written about. And she's here today to share with us two of those stories. So great to have you back as always, Kimberly. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to come back on and talk with you again. Thank you. Always so nice to talk to you. So let's start with Lillian Hawkins. Would you fill in her background for us where she lived? Okay. So uh, Lillian Hawkins, when the story starts, she's 19 years old, and this is in 1900. And she lived in Trumbull County in Ohio, and that's where she grew up. And when she was 19, she moved about 40 miles north to the town of Ashtabula, and she was taking a job doing domestic work for a family there. And that was in April of 1900. And um, not long after she moved there and started working, she got really sick. And nobody really knew what was wrong with her, but she would have these, um, these terrible spells where she would pass out and had all kinds of problems. And the doctors just said that she had nervous trouble, which was kind of generic diagnosis for any time the doctors didn't really understand what was going on, especially with women, they would say, oh, she's got nervous trouble. But she moved to Rock Creek where her aunt lived and the family doctor there said she had spinal meningitis. So it was a very specific diagnosis. And in the end, Lillian recovered. And I guess the only thing that she was like had the lingering side effects with was her eyes were really weakened. So she couldn't stand a lot of bright sunlight or anything like that. And she went back to work temporarily in Ashtabula, but then almost right away she got sick again. So she went back to Rock Creek to stay with her aunt, but her aunt had like a, a young family. So it wasn't a very comfortable place for her to recuperate. So she moved, um, her mother and her brother moved to the town temporarily, and they rented a little cottage there. And that's where they were staying. And um, that's when all of these, all of these strange incidents started in Lillian's life. Yeah. Could, could you tell us about some of these strange incidents? Okay. So uh, the first thing was that she was getting a lot of anonymous letters. And well, some of them were actually signed, but they had like a relative's name signed. And she didn't think it was actually from that relative. But many of them were anonymous and they would just say nasty things about her and reflect on her character. And they would just say terrible things about her. And in the meantime, she continued to get sick here and there. And the strangest thing that happened was in August of that same year she was hit by lightning inside her house. And I did a little bit of digging just because I like to go down these, these rabbit holes. And I found out that lightning strikes in the U.S. about 40 million times a year. But the odds of being hit by lightning are less than one in a million. 
And most people that are hit by lightning actually survive. It's something like 90%. But about a third of the deaths that do occur from a lightning strike happen inside. So it wasn't entirely crazy that she had been hit inside of her home by lightning. But it was pretty crazy when she got hit a second time about a month later. So she was hit twice by lightning in, inside her house. And um, the second time she had amnesia for several days, but uh, both times this family doctor that had diagnosed her was on hand and, and was able to bring her back from it and treat her. And, and she survived both lightning strikes. So that's, those are a couple of the strange things that happened to her. Yeah. What was the content in, in general terms of these letters? Well, I don't have the the actual letters. Only one of them survived that, that we could talk about in a little bit. But from what Lillian said, they were just terrible letters about how everyone hated her because she was an awful person. And it is true that when she was getting these letters and she kept getting sick, a lot of her friends didn't come to see her. So people kind of treated her with some coolness. So I'm not sure if it was true that people didn't like her or if maybe they just felt like she had bad luck and they didn't want to be near that, right? They didn't want to catch any of it. So um, she did get a lot of these terrible letters. And then finally in December of that year, she got a letter and it was from the author of all these other letters. Apparently there was only one author. And this person said, if you don't give back all of these letters that I've written to you, you're going to be compelled to do so. But there was no way to, I mean, it wasn't like there was a return address or somewhere where she could drop it off. So she didn't do anything. And according to Lillian also, she would burn these letters as she got them. So she didn't keep them for the most part. But that ended up being a mistake because on the 6th, so let's see, she got that letter on the 5th telling her that she had to hand over these letters. And on the 6th, she was home alone. Her mother and brother were out somewhere and she was in her room. She was dozing and somebody crawled through the front window and went into her room and she kind of woke up right as this person entered, but it was too late. This person stuck a gag in her mouth and it had chloroform in it and, and it knocked her out. And when she woke up, she was tied to her bed. So she saw the gag in and she was tied to her bed. And the person was still in her room going through her trunk, looking for the letters apparently, because Lillian saw this person stuffing letters into their pockets. So how does she react to this? As, as this person continues to get bolder, I mean, it must have been terrifying. Does her nervous condition worsen? Well, that's an interesting question. They never said if her nervous her nervous condition got worse, but you would assume if that were what was wrong with her that that it would. But one thing that she said she was very she was very cogent of the fact that the person in her room was a woman dressed in men's clothing. She was sure of it. And she would always say this. She was equally sure that it was no member of her family. And so because she had been burning these threatening letters and these, these like nasty anonymous letters that she would get, they weren't in her trunk to be taken by this person. So this person ended up just grabbing a bunch of 
ordinary letters that she would exchange with anybody. Um, and for a few weeks after that, I think she was nervous probably, but then I guess it kind of faded away. And I don't know if she received any anonymous letters within the next few weeks, but in January, she was, um, she just turned 20 in January and she opened the front door of this little cottage where they were staying, and there was a basket of apples there. And some things that we don't know about this, for instance, it's like there wasn't a card or a note, but my assumption was she, she thought that the apples were a birthday present because why else would there be apples there? And, you know, she just had had a birthday. So she grabbed one of the apples and she took a few bites and then she immediately, you know, had this terrible seizure. And so they call the doctor and the doctor's, you know, working with her and he's able to bring her back around, but he has the fruit tested and he tells her this apple is laced with strychnine. So it's, it's been poisoned. And that was, that was all the information that the papers released. So for instance, we don't know if all of the apples in the basket were poisoned or only the one that Lillian ate. But um, it was poisoned. It was intended for her, it seems, because the next day she got another anonymous letter and it wasn't mailed to her. It was like shoved under the front door of this cottage where she was staying. And this was the one that, that we have the, the text to, so I could read it to you if you want to. Please, yeah. Okay, it says, now, how high up in the world do you think you are? I'm glad you didn't die when you were bound and gagged, for you have to live to hear the stories they tell about you. You'll lie and say it's not true, but how can you prove it? It will be no use for you to try and find the person who bound and gagged you. So that was, that was the story with these poisoned apples. And to be honest with you, Eric, I have some questions about this. I mean, anybody who would have been watching her would have known she was living with her mother and her brother. So if she was the target. I mean, anybody could have opened the door and been like, oh, an apple, right? And and have just eaten it. I mean, Lillian would have and, and did. And I also thought it was really strange that somebody would make an attempt on her life. I mean, if you if you poison something with something really lethal and you try to get somebody to eat something that's been poisoned with it, you've made a murder attempt. So it seemed really brazen for this person to come back the very next day, walk right up to the house and then shove this letter under the door, like gloating about it, basically. But the police weren't suspicious. And the lab report definitely showed that the apple had been poisoned. So there you have it. I mean, it happened. So were the police able to, to glean anything from the letter analyze the handwriting? No. Well, at least they didn't write anything in the newspapers. I'm assuming the police must have known more than they were saying, but they didn't release anything to the newspapers and, and this person was not caught. But as you can imagine, it made Lillian pretty nervous. So she decided she was going to move back to Ashtabula. And when she first moved there and she was going to be, you know, working for this family, she was going to live with the family. But this time she decided she was going to live with her cousins, the Bliss family, um, and her brother Robert went with her. So as a safety precaution, she's living with, with her, her cousin's family 
And she also gives a different mailing address. So she gives the mailing address of an acquaintance and she gets her letters care of somebody else. And um, if she, if she receives anything, she goes over to that person's house to pick it up. And that becomes important. Right, right. So let's forward to April 1st, 1901. Well, first, the, the funny thing was that she did get a letter. And this was between February and March. So maybe late February, early March. She did get a letter at this home in Ashtabula where she was having her mail forwarded. And it was something she had initially received it in Rock Creek and her aunt received it. And then she put it in a new envelope and forwarded it to this address where Lillian was getting her mail. And what the police said was the letter had been intercepted. Somebody had opened it and replaced the letter that was inside. And it was another nasty anonymous letter. And it actually wasn't anonymous. It said it was from her aunt, but her aunt definitely didn't send it. And it just said basically that she was a disgrace. It was this very convoluted mystery about how would somebody intercept an envelope and how did somebody else know this address? But she did receive this anonymous letter and it kicked off another round of anonymous nasty letters that she continued to receive. So as you were saying, if you fast forward just a little bit um, in April, Lillian had a nightmare. She was still staying with her cousins and she had a nightmare that somebody had thrown something burning liquid into her face. And um, a couple days later, or maybe it was a week later, she was with her aunt and they were doing chores in the kitchen after dinner. And her aunt went to the little coal house they had in the backyard to get some coal for the home to make it warm. And Lillian heard somebody call her and so she thought it was her aunt and she walked to the back door and she said, did you call me? And her aunt had a lantern with her and she held it up and because of Lillian's eyes being so weak, she threw up her hand to shield her face or at least her eyes from the the light of the lantern. I guess it was too strong for her. And right when she did, someone who had been kind of concealed by the side of the house ran out and threw acid into her face and then ran away. And so her aunt like heard her screaming and and ran into the kitchen and Lillian's there. And and I guess carbolic acid has a particular odor to it. So she knew what it was right away. And Lillian was burned on like her forehead, the side of her face, her arms. But because she had like you know, put up her hand to to block the light. It was her hand that was burned more so than her eyes. And she also shut her eyes. So her eyelids were burned, but she wasn't blinded by it as she would have probably been in any other circumstance. So does she think she knows who her stalker is? And if so, does she tell the police? Who in the world would want to hurt her? Right. Who would want to harm her? Because like she, she didn't have a lot of enemies and she didn't even have an opportunity to, to make a lot of enemies, even if, if she had been a terrible person. But one thing that the police did find was that there were uh, footprints around the area where she had been attacked because it was, you know, early spring and it was still rainy and, and kind of muddy out there. And even though people had seen somebody in men's clothes creeping around this house where she was staying, the shoe prints 
were from women's shoes. And it was like some fashionable, newer, newer make of shoe. So it was a woman. And Lillian was confident that it was. And she said, I don't have any enemies. I have one relative who doesn't like me, who the police were immediately able to eliminate as a suspect. She said, the only other person is there's a married woman and she's she's jealous of me, but she doesn't have any reason to be. And the police didn't really, I don't know if the police were able to find out very much, but the press was. And so um, the newspapers did a little bit of research and they found out that Lillian had grown up uh, with a, with a girl, her name was Myrtle. And Myrtle was a few years older than Lillian. And she had a boyfriend named Will Hoyt. And uh, she was really, really into this boyfriend. But then she married somebody else. And his name was Bert Troll, which is a pretty funny name. But uh, <laughs> Myrtle and Bert, I guess they had kind of a, a dysfunctional sort of marriage. And eventually Myrtle left him and sued for divorce. And then Bert countersued Myrtle. And when they went to court, Lillian was called as a witness. And she testified that she had heard Myrtle talking about this guy that she had really liked, Will Hoyt, and how she cared a lot more about him than she ever did about her husband. And this was when they were when Myrtle was still married to her husband. And um, there were some some indications that Myrtle was pretty bitter over this because I believe her husband won the, the court case. But at the stra- the strange thing was that um, Myrtle, Myrtle got engaged to somebody else right away and then she remarried Bert Troll. So at the time all of this was happening to Lillian, uh, Myrtle was remarried to the same guy again. And so it seemed unlikely, and I don't know if this makes it any more likely or less likely, but... Um, Myrtle was really good friends with Lillian's aunt, uh, her aunt Nina Knowlton, that she had stayed with briefly when she first moved to to the Ashtabula Rock Creek area. So um, there, I don't know, like it could have been, it's possible that Myrtle was behind all of this, but maybe not. And so um, that was as far as as the press cut. And I don't even know if the police would have done that much. But they were trying to look out for her and make sure that nobody nobody was able to harm her. But they weren't very successful since this person, you know, ran right up in the yard and threw acid in her face. Right. And this isn't the end of her terror either. Right. More drama comes involving fruit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> She probably should have steered clear about the fruit. But um, about, let's see, it was maybe five months after the whole acid throwing incident. And um, the police hadn't learned anything. And Lillian stayed in Ashtabula, but she moved in with different family members, I guess. And one night, the family was eating dessert. And they were, I guess they were doing like sliced peaches. And Lillian, of course, gets violently ill. And right away, everybody's very paranoid about anything to do with her, right, in her health. And so they call for the doctor, they have the peaches examined, and they find that the peaches had been poisoned with laudanum. Yeah. And only Lillian got sick. So um, I, I found this one to be to be pretty suspicious, to tell you the truth, Eric, because if you think about like, if you are eating dinner with with your family or some friends or whatever, and you have something like peaches, usually 
not everybody would have like their own, you know, jar of preserves, right? Like everybody would have like, there would be like one dish and you would pass it around, but only Lillian got sick. So it, I, I was just trying to think of like ways that it would be possible. And I mean, maybe like in the kitchen, people put all this, all the peaches on the plates and then they brought them into the dining room or something. But even then you'd have to know which plate William was going to get. And who could do that? Like who could, who could get into the house, poison them or swap them out? And then, or how come no one else got sick if they were all poisoned? So it just, it seemed like a a very strange thing. But shortly after that, about three months later, uh, Lillian actually got married. Um, And it was, it was to a guy named Julius Bliss. It was her, I guess it was her cousin, um, not the one she was staying with, but it was maybe his younger brother. And so that's what ended up happening with her. And after that, you know, um, they had, I think, four children. And Lillian lived to be a hundred years old, but she was never again mentioned in the papers or her story or or anything like that. So it was this it was this series of terrible, violent murder attempts and and really horrible harassment. And then it was just over. Yeah, it's interesting that it stopped when she got married. Yeah. So if Myrtle Brown was indeed behind it. Perhaps her getting married removed her as a threat for Myrtle? Maybe. I mean, if she thought maybe Lillian was after her ex-husband slash current husband, it could have been. But I mean, I feel kind of horrible even saying it, but like, I wondered if she made most of it up. I can't imagine anyone throwing acid into their own face, right? Like that seems like beyond the realm of belief, but some of the other things like, like being hit by lightning twice inside your own living room and like within six weeks, that seems really far-fetched to me. And, and how could she like with the poisoned apple? I would be curious to know if all the apples in that basket had been poisoned or if it was only the one that Lillian ate and how that person who left them would have known that Lillian would eat it and not like her brother or her mom or somebody, you know, um, all of these things struck me as, as very strange, but I put the story on my website and I have really interesting, really thoughtful readers. And a lot of them were like, no, I could absolutely see how that could happen and, and believe that Myrtle was behind it. So that makes me question myself a little bit more because a lot of times they come up with great solutions that I've never thought of. Well, in that incident, when she was tied up, it's hard to, to tie yourself up, right? Well, it is, but you could see how she could maybe do it. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm just a little bit diabolical in my thinking, but I, I could see how she could tie herself up or make it look like she had been tied up if if she wanted to. It would take a little bit of doing, but I think she could. Um, but but a lot of people disagreed with me on this and, and felt, you know, the harassment and, and the targeting was really genuine. And, and Kim came to the same conclusion that you were saying about like, well, maybe she just wasn't a threat anymore. And so that's why it all stopped. But for whatever reason, this poor girl, this like 19 year old girl who had no known enemies was the target of like an extended campaign of harassment and murder attempts in 1900, which is the craziest thing. Right. 
Uh, so if anybody wants to read more about this, go to Kimberly's website. You can read the story in its entirety and leave your own thoughts in her comment section. We will be back after a brief message. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook. Available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. And we have returned. Awesome. So let's chat now about a second story from your old spirituals.com website. This one, darker. There's a murder involved. So tell us about the scene that met police on March 26th, 1920, when they responded to a call at 681 South Brownie Bray Avenue in Los Angeles. Okay, so they got a call from a woman named Miss Myra Pete, and she was calling because she hadn't heard from her friend Ruby that she had known for about eight years at that point. She hadn't heard from her in several days, and she had tried calling, and she had stopped over. She couldn't find her. And so she went back to the apartment, and the landlady let her in. And she found a terrible scene in front of her. This little apartment where her friend Ruby lived was just trashed. And in the middle of it 
was the body of her friend, Ruby. And at the time, Ruby was 27 years old, and it was obvious that she had been murdered. The, the apartment had, you know, letters, books, clothing, glasses, even records. Everything was smashed all over the floor. And this girl, she was really beautiful. And she was dressed in um, like these silky pajamas, you know, they've been ripped a little bit, but she had um, bruises around her neck and she had been strangled with a silk chemise and it was still on her body. And then when the police got there and they were investigating, they opened her mouth and they could find that there was a man's handkerchief that had been stuffed into her mouth and it was bloody. And they also could tell that her neck had been broken. And so it was a terrible, violent scene. And it was mysterious as well. So it looked like she had had someone over and that they were probably drinking and dancing because the phonograph had worn down. And that was, that was one of the central points of the story. There was a record on the phonograph called Love's Old Sweet Song. And it was a really popular song at the time. And it had just run down. It had played over and over until it just ran down And sometime after she died. And when the police investigated, the neighbor said, oh, well, I heard some sounds like it sounded like maybe things were dropping. He didn't think, obviously, that she had been murdered, but he heard a, a big commotion. Um, the person who lived directly beneath her heard this loud commotion around midnight on March 23rd, going into March 24th. And so the police were just baffled by what they found there. What did you learn about Ruby Reed as you researched her? Was it easy to find information about her? A little bit. She was really a woman of mystery. You know, she was, uh, she had been born Ruby Glennon. And she had married a man named George Reed in Leavenworth, Kansas in 1908 when she was 16 years old. <clears throat> and she had moved to L.A. with him. And in 1915, they had gone up to San Francisco to get a divorce. But they lived both in L.A. at the time. They didn't really talk anymore. Um, there wasn't any animosity between them, but they just they had gone their separate ways and so now she was 27 years old. She was living in kind of a glamorous little apartment. She was an extra in, in the films, you know, which were just starting to take off in 1920. Not, no talkies yet, but she was, she was like an extra in a lot of these little films. And um, she had several boyfriends. And she was living a great life in terms of like income for somebody who was just an extra in the movies and who came from a very modest background in, in Kansas. And so when the police were looking around to find out, you know, how did she support herself in this style? They found that there was at least one man, his name was Alfred Smith, and he lived in New Zealand. And he was probably the main source of her income. So he would send her large checks all the time. And they were able to ascertain that because when they looked around her room, all the letters that were in the room had been torn to shreds, but they would painstakingly reassemble them. And they found several were from this man named Alfred, although he signed his name Bobby, and he would send her money all the time. And that was probably like her main source of income. He, he was in New Zealand when this happened, correct? Mm-hmm. 
I couldn't find a whole lot about him. He wasn't a suspect in the murder because, like you said, he was in New Zealand at the time. And I was trying to figure out how we could have ever met her. But I found that several men named Alfred Smith had served in World War One, like many men from, from the New Zealand area. And uh, Leavenworth, Kansas was near a World War One camp um, where people would, you know, prepare for it was kind of like a boot camp where they would prepare to go overseas. And I thought maybe she could have met him there or maybe she met him in L.A. somehow. But for whatever reason, he would send her a lot of money even after he moved back. And, and that's where what she was basically living on. And nobody considered her, her ex-husband a, a suspect just because their divorce was amicable and they hadn't really been in contact for over a year. Right. So there were two other suspects. Spencer Pointer and George Friedrichs. What was her relationship to each of these men? Well, it seemed to me that um, Spencer, so Spencer was a former sailor, a lot lot of people around 1920. So the Great War, World War I was was just over for for not that long. And um, a lot of these people were like veterans, but young veterans. And um, Spencer seemed just kind of infatuated with Ruby. A lot of people would say that he was, he kind of had this puppy-like devotion to her, but it didn't really seem like it was reciprocated, but she would, you know, I think she liked the attention. And so he would come over and he would have dinner with her or take her out somewhere. And then she would say, all right, you know, you need to go home. And that's what she did on the night of her murder. So he had a late supper with her. And then she told him to leave around 11 o'clock because she said her sweetheart was going to call on her to get some money. And that was widely assumed to be this other man you mentioned. His name was George Friedrichs. And he was a chauffeur. And he was older. So Spencer was around 30. And I want to say George was like 40 or 41, somewhere like that. And he just it seemed very obvious that he just was really, you know, desperately in love with Ruby's bank account, maybe, but not really with her. And um, some of the letters that they found in her apartment, um, one was unfinished, and she had probably been writing it around the time that she died. And it was dated, you know, Wednesday night or Tuesday night, whatever it was. And it was, Dear George, I'm enclosing the money you asked for. There was no money there. But, um, the letter was there, at least the shredded pieces of it were there. And um, they, they brought Spencer into custody, but he couldn't really tell them very much. So they went over to see George and um, they started searching his house. And there were a lot of letters there. And some of them were from Ruby. Basically, she was jealous. She was angry. And um, a lot of people had told the police that she had been on a bender. You know, she had been like just drunk for several days before she died. And it was because she had been fighting with George. And the letters that he had from her in his house told the story that she found out that he was writing to another woman. And uh, Ruby was saying, I'm through with you. I don't ever want to talk with you again. And they were just, they were kind of just rant and rave, but there were a lot of them. So she continued to write to him to tell him this. And I don't know if he was writing back to her, but eventually her friend, 
the same one that that notified the police about her body, uh, she had written to George Friedrichs and said, you know, please call Ruby. She's drinking. She's grieving herself to death over you. And eventually, I guess George did call her, but he only called her to ask her for $14. So um, she said she would send it to him the next morning, which would have been the morning after her death, right? So she died on a Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, and the money never came. And the police did find that ripped up letter that said, I'm including the $15. But um, even though the money never came, you know, George said, well, I didn't go to her apartment. You know, I just called her and I asked her for money. But then I went out and I shot pool. I was hanging out with my friends. And then I, I came home around 11 o'clock and I went to bed. So that was his story. And um, I did forget the police did find one other letter from Ruby. And it was much more of like a love letter. And she said, you know, I, I love you so much. And I, I just can't share you with anybody. And I'll send you more money in a few days. But the police didn't, it wasn't dated, so they didn't know if she sent it before or after these really angry letters that she had sent. Oh, goodness. So Friedrichs has an alibi. Could police confirm it? Do you know? It didn't seem like it, but the police accepted it. The police accepted his alibi, and they believed Spencer when he said that, you know, well, Ruby just sent me home at 11 o'clock. One thing that they found at her apartment was at some point, what the police thought had happened was that she was dancing with this man and he got infuriated for some reason and started to choke her. And she was fighting back until the point when he broke her neck. But before he did, she had like just a little bit of strength and she reached up and she grabbed his hair. And so she had like two hairs, I think, in her hand that weren't hers, that the police thought that she like tore from from this man's head before she died and they didn't match Friedrichs and they didn't match Spencer. So the police, I guess, just kind of accepted their alibi based on the fact that the hair in her hand didn't look like their hair. Although that's really like, I mean, they were going back at like color consistency, I guess, but it it wasn't a very exact science, but that's what they they decided that they must be telling the truth and they they accepted their alibis and let them go. There were some rumors, right, that she was involved with some bunko artists, possibly? Well, that's what they turned to next. And this one seemed a lot flimsier. Uh, they, they decided maybe she was like too friendly with these men from the underworld. And because she was drinking so much, she was probably just like telling everything she knew to anybody who would listen. And maybe one of them put her out of the way. And they found at least one of these guys, it, it wasn't totally uncommon for people to live at hotels at the time. And so one of these guys was living at a hotel and they could see that he had made or somebody there had made calls to Ruby's apartment a few times. And so they said, well, maybe it was this guy, but they weren't able to make any kind of connection. And um, they did find two other clues that led nowhere. But the first one was that they found um, one of the hotels downtown contacted the police and they said, you know, this woman who was murdered, Ruby Reed, she has a trunk here. So she had been staying here with some man and then they left without paying the rent and then she abandoned the trunk. And so the police were examining the the trunk, but there were never any more articles or any more information about it. It was just 
there was a chunk there. And it seems like there was nothing else that came of that. So presumably there was nothing in it that could indicate. And, and also they didn't say when she had left it there. The other thing that happened that was very strange was that a knife was delivered to her house. And this was the day after her death. So she died around midnight, uh, Tuesday night, Wednesday morning. And on Wednesday, a knife was delivered to her house. And it was a very distinctive kind of ugly, unique knife with these figurines carved in it. And it was wrapped in brown paper and addressed to Ruby and it was delivered to her apartment. But this was before her body was even discovered. So nobody thought anything of it or like had any information about the, the, the person who delivered it or anything. And the police weren't able to trace it or even see if there was any kind of link to whether, you know, it had anything to do with her murder, if it was a warning or anything like that. They weren't able to tell. So what are your thoughts on who might have murdered her? Do you think any of these suspects we talked about have potential? I mean, I thought that the chauffeur did it because the one that she was so in love with that wasn't wasn't very in love with her, but really cared about, you know, getting money from her. The only thing about that is that she was kind of his meal ticket. I mean, he had a job, but he was getting a lot of money from her. And so I wondered maybe he got angry at her. She was interfering with him in some way because she wanted more from that relationship than he did. And I thought, well, maybe there was something there and they got in a fight and he did it. But he was the only one who seemed likely to me. It was clearly somebody she knew because she was in her apartment with him and this happened around midnight. She wasn't screaming or anything like that because people could hear commotion upstairs. They would have heard if she had screamed. And it just seemed like the only person who was maybe likely that, you know, he had had anything to do with it. So again, if you'd like to read more accounts like this, Gilded Age Accounts, oldspirituals.com, head on over and check out her wonderfully researched and written stories. Yeah, there actually is, there is one little thing that goes with this story. Sure. I I wanted to read more about her history. And so I was just kind of digging into it a little bit. And I found out that her mother um, had died under very suspicious circumstances six years before Ruby died. And um, her mother's name was Mary, and she was 50 at the time. And she was running a boarding house. And, you know, she, she was making some money, and then Ruby would send her some money. But it wasn't like she was at all well off. I mean, she, just, she was just a normal person, and she was still living in Kansas. And even though she was 50 and she was in good health, she was discovered dead in her room. And um, it was, it's a very funny thing. Her friend came over to see her. Her friend wasn't able to get a hold of her. So her friend came in and, and got somebody else to open the door. I mean, it was very, very similar to what happened with Ruby and how Ruby was found. And the, the coroner said that, well, she must have fainted, gotten ill, fallen on her bed, and somehow smothered herself with the pillow. It was, I mean, it sounded very suspect, right? And then the niece, uh, this woman's niece, Mrs. Glennon's niece, came over as these final arrangements were being made for her aunt and found that the house had been ransacked. And so even the scene was very similar. Like all the drawers had been pulled out and pictures were smashed. And even the carpet had been pulled up. Somebody was looking for something. 
and she wasn't known to be wealthy or anything like that. But it was, it just struck me as so odd that, that the same, it was, it was so similar to what happened to her own daughter six years later. And I mean, I wouldn't think that there would be any kind of connection between the two. At the time um, in 1914, Ruby would have still very young and she was still married to her husband and everything. So I don't think there was any kind of connection, but I did think it was like a, a strange little side piece of that story. Very strange. Well, so nice to have you back, Kimberly. Well, thanks again for coming on. And I always look forward to talking to you. Thank you for having me on. And, and I hope to hear from anybody who would like to read these stories. I hope you'll leave a comment and let me know what you think about them. Again, I have been speaking to Kimberly Tilly. She is the author of Grievous Deeds, Cold Heart, Has It Come to This, and The Poisoned Glass. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. <laughs>